Welcome to this podcast bites. <laughs> it's been a while. It's been a while, and tonight we are discussing the interview with the vampire with our five hosts tonight, starting mm-hmm. with Hi everybody. Hi. Hi. I'm, I'm Mona. Hi Mona. Mona, do you want to tell us anything about you? No. Okay. (laughs) All right. So I'm Joffrey. Uh, You can find me at joffreysperl.com. You can also find me on Mastodon at uh, mastodon.social. Is that it? I think that's it. I don't talk too much on there. But you can find me at joffreysperl.com. Don't look for me on Twitter. I'm no longer on Twitter. Um, Elon Musk can burn Twitter down. Mm -hmm. I'm fine with that. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, we're on YouTube now. No. Oh, wow. Is it a secret? We're on YouTube now. I've been working on this. I've been working on this with, shameless plug, the podcast that Mona and I do on other weeks, Babylon Squared, our Babylon 5 rewatch podcast. It's Um, not popular. Yeah, I mean, we get like 15 listens per episode. I'm just um, saying, don't be late. Yeah, exactly. But I got that working, and now I've got it working for this one, too. So, <laughs> Okay, I'm done. Scotland. Uh, did we lose them? Oh, no, we lost Fred and Maddie. So, folks. Oh, they're back. Are we back? They're back. They're back. We are. Hi. It's your right, turn. so... Fred. Uh, so I'm Alice Wilfred uh, Earl, aka Fred, and you can find me at Alice Dragon on Twitter. I do also have a website, but I've not done anything with that for years. <laughs> Matty, on to you. I am uh, Matty Tucker. I am at Doomed Rider on Twitter. Um, you can also find me Matty-Tucker.com. Um, but don't try and find me, I'll find you. Um, <laughs> and um, finally... Yeah, and I'm Robin. Um, you're probably best off finding me at Matt underscore. No, wait, shit. I'll start again. <laughs> uh, I am Robin. Um, you probably won't find me most places because I'm pretty quiet online, to be honest. But I'll be here. Okay. <laughs> there we go. That's what works. So tonight, or today, whatever, um, today on um, this podcast, Bites, we are starting off a run of Anne Rice stories, uh, my suggestion, um, who knows why, um, with the <laughs> interview with a vampire. An interview with the vampire. So I've I, I been for interview with a vampire, obviously we've had a different book to you. Yeah, <laughs> I've been interview with a vampire for years, I think it's a better title, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> So where do you so want to start? I suggested this because I had never read any Anne Rice before. And she had passed away. Yes. And she had passed away. And I figured that as someone, you know, relatively uh, well-known and influential in the modern vampire genre, it would be sensible for us to give her a go. Yeah. Uh, so this was my first time in view. I had previously watched the... Pret- Pit and Cruise, Pit and Cruise uh, film. 
<laughs> I was about to say, had you, you, you sound like maybe you started the imbibing of alcohol a little earlier than the podcast, Manny. <laughs> uh, this is not true. That's the first sip I've had. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Fair I enough. have driven to Edinburgh and back. So, okay. That would do it. Yeah. So yeah. let's see here. I did read Interview and Lestat and Queen of the Dam back in the 80s. And I saw, <laughs> I saw Interview with the Vampire opening night in 1994. Oh. And my then girlfriend and I completely massacred the thing in the theater. I'm sure the <laughs> audience around us was not happy with us. So, you know. Mona, Robin, what was your experience with this book before? Mm, um, this is my first time reading it. You okay. know, in the early 90s, I watched the movie. I wasn't impressed. Uh, now that I've um, read more of the book, I understand how Tom Cruise maybe wasn't, would, would not have been my choice for yeah. Lista. And I think that may have done something to sort of turn me off on Anne Rice early on. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. So re reading the book was good. I mean, go, don't get me wrong, like plot holes. Uh, mm -hmm. But um, yeah. Yeah. Hey, Robin. It's all you. Uh, well, I saw the film first, I think probably on video. Mm. Um, when it hit video. <laughs> and then I didn't, and I think I liked it well enough. When I first saw it, and I've rewatched it lots of times since, and I still get a kick out of it. But mm -hmm. the book I didn't get around to until about 97, 98, I think. Mm. And then I promptly went out and borrowed the other, the, the other two in the first three. So in Queen of the Damned and Vampire, the start, I borrowed them pretty quickly after and just reread them over and over until I had to get them back to the library. Um, nowadays, I think I still prefer the movie to the book because Ooh. I prefer the, yeah, I prefer the stat to Louis. So yeah, I hate okay. Louis portrayal of the stat in the book and it comes across <laughs> a little bit better in the film, I think. But yeah, I did have a glance through the book again <laughs> before this, but I've not had a proper reread. Um, too much whining, Louis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so, I can't actually remember. Uh, which is terrible of me, isn't it? Um, I may have had my first run in with this. With the film of Queen of the Damned? Hmm. Really? Which is rubbish, but really hot. So, <laughs> we'll make exceptions for that. I was probably about what, 15? That sounds about right, yes. Um, but I may have watched the other film first. Lord knows. Um, it's really a blur. My memory is normally quite good. But I know that I read Interview with the Vampire and then Queen of the Damned. And I didn't read the Vampire Stat until many years later. Um, a few years later, at least. I was probably, yeah, 14, 15, 16. Mm -hmm. um, it made an impact, I think. I was pretty well fed on Buffy. I'm mm -hmm. a little young, uh, Joff and Robin at least. Um, uh, so it's the influence of it was already very much affecting my understanding of, of, of vampires. Um, I enjoyed them enormously, 
uh, as a horny teenager, which mm -hmm. I think is the target audience. Um, and gradually made my way through not all of the rest of the, uh, of the books, but a fair few. Where did you end? Do you remember? Well, it's less that I end and more that I resisted buying any of them new. <laughs> so it's about got second hand. I think Blackwood Farm is the most is like the latest one I've read. Okay. Okay. Um, and I've read. I think I've read all of them up to Armand, and then it gets a bit patchy. Okay. I kind of on Vampire Chronicles. I kind of top out at I think Memnock the Devil. So that would be number five. Mm. I think it's number five because I never did like Pandora or Armand or um, what's the other one in the New Tales, Vittorio. I think. I think so. I think. Mm. Yeah. I like. Well, I yeah. always like them. So, you know, I I I I haven't, and I never read any of the witch books. So I don't know any, other than what I've read online, I don't have any of that background of the Mayfair witches. I did read the first Mummy book, and Ramses is mentioned in Lestat, which we won't get into this episode, but yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think I've probably read maybe a third of her books total. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Am I the only one who got to meet her? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I met her when she was on her signing tour for Servant of the Bones, which would have been 1994. It would have been around the time of the movie, if I remember correctly. Um, very sweet. Extremely sweet. Um, just wonderful, wonderful woman. Um, really enjoyed talking with her. I mean, obviously, I only had a couple of minutes to talk to her, but yeah. Really great. When I was in New Orleans in 1996, I did get to visit her... Uh, like the outside of her house um had an interaction with one of her one of her guard dogs she had these big german shepherds on the property and, uh, <laughs> my then girlfriend and i walk up to the gate and we're just looking at things and he's right there just staring at us we're like what do you want what's up and he's not barking or anything he's not being aggressive and then i look and one of his toys is under the fence under the the wrought iron fence that he can't get to so i toss it under the fence the eye of the 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 personal security guy from the porch is staring at me as i'm tossing the toy back under the fence <laughs> but the dog's happy and you know didn't didn't upset the security guy so i'm assuming she was in the house at the That's... time but yeah yeah all right maddie what questions do you have for us Wait. So, um, your video is really patchy. So, is it? Yeah, yeah, I think our internet's a bit off, so I apologize about that. I'm going to turn off my... I'm going to do exactly what I do with Mona on the other podcast. I'm going to turn off if my should... video. There. We'll just video. do all, all audio. All right. Thanks. Yes, now I look better. <laughs> okay, so... Um, <laughs> What? Uh, Robin oh, choked. You're on. Yes. <laughs> so, um, 
Okay, so the first thing that I encounter when what when reading these books, and this is particularly having already watched the films, so this mm -hmm. is the thing that really was the particular um, physical betrayal of the vampires, mm -hmm. which is quite distinct, particularly in the early chapters, Rice spends a lot of time describing how very much not human they are, and the impression is you could never uh, mistake them from being human unless it was really, really dark. That's yeah. where I want to start. What do we think about the physical portrayal of the vampires and how and what the purpose of that and how that does work in the narratives? I mean, I find the physicality of vampires really fascinating. And the way she has them as these sort of stone-like beings, these sort of living statues, really interests me. Um, and I can't think of an earlier version which has that. Hmm. I, I mean, I think it might be the Catholicism showing, but um, yeah, there's a there's an uncanniness to her vampires that is, like, we've had horrific vampires, we've had scary vampires before, and we've had um, very bodily, sort of fleshy vampires. Mm -hmm. That stone-like uncanniness is quite new to Rice. It's sort of counterintuitive because it ruins them as an apex predator. Like, if, if um, the lighting is too much and with my human eyes, all I can perceive is um, something that does look supernatural, yeah, it's going to hurt your hunting chances, huh. generally. <laughs> it could, sure. I agree with that. Yeah. I... But also, oh, so, no, oh go, go ahead. ahead. Go, go. I was just going to say, um, also, uh, the way she describes them, it's really how we see them right uh what we can perceive mm -hmm. but through vampire eyes you know they see something so much more mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i agree i mean yeah. it's very clear to me that physically right as louis and then in later books lestat describing breathing heartbeat right um blood rushing through their veins there's there's internally very much a human physiology at play there right they can still have the breath knocked out of them their heart still beats you know in their chest or rate you know rushes when they're when they're excited or something like that um they can smell things they sweat they cry although it's blood um so yeah, if, I, I think you're I, I think you're onto something there, Maddie, with the idea that they are physically different. Are they as much statuesque looking, though, Fred? I mean, Akasha and Enkil in the later books. Well, Marius's description by Lestat. I know the description in um, of the Moonstone Mask is actually uh, bright, not nice. But that was the impression I got from the description, this sense of something that was made from a soft stone. Hmm. Um, it, like, the, the veininess of them is like the veininess of marble. It's not... Mm. 
and even because you said they cry blood and it's do they cry blood or do they cry water tinged with blood true true which is there's this sort of if not stone and ceramic quality to them mm. they are saintly mm, i like that I like I like the idea of ceramic as opposed to necessarily like the marble that Akasha and Enkil are described as. Because it's, I mean, that sort of saintliness, it, it, it seems from that um, initial description. And, I, and it's sort of I'm jumping over myself a little bit here, but it does feel that in some ways... Um, to a certain extent, actually, over the course of Vampire Stat, but certainly, so Vampire, um, the into the Vampire, but certainly over the next ones, I think Rice draws back from this fully, and you've got the argument, oh, well, this is this. Um, they look like that to vampire eyes. Yeah, but right, right. It, <clears throat> but there is this sense in which there is; these are almost angels. That's the, yeah. that's the symbology that seems to be going to be. You see, I would argue they were icons, not angels. Well, but there is, there is something otherworldly and potentially divine, potentially, but it's that, um, I mean, um, it, it's... They are the only supernatural beings in Rice's world, particularly at the start. The only tangible supernatural beings. Mm. And, but it's, but yes, it's that sort of, but if you particularly put this as what she is doing is describing something that is fundamentally not Count Orlock. <laughs> <laughs> you know? even... Sure. It, it's yeah. that, what, what can you do when you're doing, you can do something incredible, you know, that's more or less bestial. Mm-hmm. Bestial. Or, but all what you do is this thing that is this sort of, yeah, that, that is, yeah stone-like ethereal sort of marble this, 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 some whatever you're sort of exactly going there that it's um that sense in which you're setting out from the start that these are um these are not yeah these are not lower life forms they're higher life forms is the, yeah. is the i got with this but yes it comes down to actually the the reason why I think she draws away from this and the kind of believability, my, my frustration with this, is it's, oh, that's a beautiful bit of imagery and beautiful thing, but then the moment you have them essentially trying to act human and wander around humans, and you've kind of spent three, four chapters basically saying they couldn't possibly do this because unless it's, unless they've feasted heavily on blood and it's quite dark, you would never mistake them for human. Mm-hmm. I don't know that she goes that far, though. Like, it's a sense that under candlelight, when they fed, they passed just fine. It is modern light. And I think that comes to Rice's obsession with modernity. The idea that we, we bring the vampires, we can, we can record them on, on tape. We can actually listen to them speak. We can put them under light and see how they look different from us. Because we can't see them during the day. And by candlelight, they're softened. Because candlelight everything. And the way that modernity is making all of this explicable which i wonder is one of the thrusts of at least the first three books that modernity comes into these dark places and opens it out you hmm. said modernity five times so i'm looking it up 
Oh, I get it. Of the modern world. Right. I really like, well, I really like what you're saying about um, this sort of uh, higher being, um, you know, angel or asura, because really it's perspective. Um, you could see them as uh, salvation, you know, bestowing a gift, or you could see it as a curse. It's all about perspective there. Mm. Yeah. I was into the Gilda last week, and I mean, Gilda was a response to rising number. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Last week, <laughs> two months ago. Last, we last episode. Week. Yeah, a couple months yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I agree. I think Gilda was very much a response to race. Yeah. Um. I I was curious. Well, wait, Maddie. Did we actually cover everything there? Well, I was, I was saying I don't think Robin's had a chance to chip in. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, I, the only so when um, you were saying about uh, ruining them as an apex predator, it's like for the majority of interview, it doesn't really matter because Louis's stuck in the past, and mm. we're there with him, and there's no bright lights until at least the Victorian period. Mm -hmm. So for like centuries, thousands of years, even they've been absolutely fine, and then all of a sudden, gaslight and then electric light and. Mm -hmm. In a way, I'd kind of like to see the what we do in the shadows esque rubbish <laughs> vampires in the Victorian period who aren't quite as good at it as Lestat and Louis and that trying to deal with the fact that suddenly they're getting spotted under the gaslight in wherever, and then there's the light bulb. And how many of them did they lose? <laughs> Like a bottleneck evolutionarily. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that would be that would be fun to see. Because there's this sense in interview that it's all of the past, that he is well that Armand is the oldest vampire he knows. That they're almost a dying breed, and I know the later mm -hmm. books contradict this one. The loneliness is so profound. Mm-hmm. And it's the sense that yeah, he's hunting in dimly lit clubs because as as Mona says. What's he gonna do? Right. Where's he gonna where's he gonna find food? He's too obvious under electric light. And then and 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 the start of the books has sort of died away to this sort of husk of himself. Mm-hmm. And you get the impression he's gonna he's gonna kill himself soon because he can't adapt to the modern world and Louis couldn't help him. Right. So they're they're finished. And yeah. obviously she backtracked on that. Um, well, yeah. Because writing yeah, a bestseller will do that to you. But but that that kind of... What were you going to say next, Joe? That piggybacks on my observation that I've made within our group that um, I think Interview is not the first book in the Vampire Chronicles. I think Interview is just a one-off. And I think the first yes. book in the Vampire Chronicles is actually the Vampire Lestat. Yeah. yeah. Because I think the Lestat when... in Interview okay. is not the Lestat in in Lestat and Queen of the Damned and Tale of the Body Thief and Memnock the Devil. Regardless of Louis' bias, it's not the same Lestat. You've got to narrow your eyes ever so slightly, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> It, the stuff in interview 
is um, a manipulative semi-horror mm-hmm. who is taken down and reduced and destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, when I finished Interview of the Vampire, I couldn't. I, 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 I finished it thinking, if I didn't know there was a series, I wouldn't imagine that there was going to be a series. It doesn't feel like a book that is dying for a sequel, even though it has a, oh, now I'm going to go and interview Lestat. Right. Moment. Well, no, it's, I'm going to go and like, get Lestat to turn me into a vampire. Like. Yeah, but, but even though, the, the, I mean, I, I, I can't remember exact sort of lines at the end because we watched the film more recently, but the, um, but yeah, it, even though there is something set up there that suggests that um, Daniel is going to go and seek out the start, and that's sort of, you know, the, the, it, it, it still it feels like a self-contained novel. It also, oh, actually, this is a separate point, so I'll, I'm not going into that right now. But yeah, I, I it is. I, I agree. It's not. It doesn't feel like the beginning of the Vampire Chronicles. Right. The end of the novel is quote Lestat off St Charles Avenue, old house crumbling, shabby neighborhood. Look for rusted railings. And then, stuffing the notebook quickly in his pocket, he gathered the tapes in his, into his briefcase along with the small recorder and hurried down the long hallway, down the stairs to the street, in the fr- where in front of the corner bar his car was parked. And that's it. I read that as a second interview. And potentially try and get turned at the same time. But Yeah. But he, the point is he's, he's collecting up his tapes. But anyway, that was my reading of it. So that was why I said that. No. No. What about the end of the movie? <laughs> Louis. Louis. We quote that one to each other quite a lot. <laughs> we do. I can't remember the end of the movie. What happens at the end of the movie? Um, I'll give you the choice uh, I never had. <laughs> Thank you, Tom Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, uh, Daniel um, has had the fright of his life. He gets into this car. He puts in the cassette to make sure that it's still there, that he's actually not just dreamt the whole thing. And then suddenly he gets the fright of his life because... Uh, second, well, second fright of his life. Um, because Lestat sort of pops up next to him and then says... Oh, oh, yes, yeah. I remember. He's like in a convertible. It's Christian Slater. Yep. I, thank you. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah yep. And then the car crashes into another car and then the side of the barrier on the bridge and surprisingly Ooh. no one gets hurt. And no one stops. And, they just keep driving. And they all yeah. live happily ever after. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which uh, yeah. changes the setup for the vampire Lestat. But... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Which they never made. And I think if they were going to make it, it should have been there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, could I have dealt with another movie with Cruz as Lestat? I don't know. Who would have been the right choice for Lestat in the movie? At the time? I think Cruz is perfectly fine for Louis Lestat. As Lestat from the Vampire Lestat going onwards, heck no. But for the monster that Louis paints him as, I think Tom Cruise does a fascinating and fantastic job. Yeah, okay, I can see that argument. I can agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think at the time... Even though he, I think he's a little bit older than Tom Cruise. Um, Julian Sands was oh, yeah. my ideal. Mm. Warlock. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
But I think he was even a little bit older than Tom Cruise at the time. Um, so you're not gonna you're not gonna pass Julian Sands off in the early mid '90s as a 19 year old who was turned into a vampire. <laughs> oh, aging. Hmm? is in in life drive me mental. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's for next time but god how old are these people i'm not telling you well i will tell you very specifically and then i'll backtrack on it <laughs> right like, um, armand is described as young in this but he's never described as a boy that's true then, um, then he becomes a boy in the next one right and then they kind of backtrack a bit on that and go well Maybe early 20s. <laughs> He's got a baby face, Fred. <laughs> I just feel like I would say that would be a young man. A boy implies, in the context, under 17. Yeah. I'm fairly sure from what, um, it's implied in... Um, it's implied that he's supposed to be 15 in Marius's description. Well, I think she got a fairly stern word about Peter Feely. Yeah. And had to age him up a bit. So, one of the things, and again, this is where I get an um, interview with the vampire feels self-contained to me, this is where I was going previously, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> is this, it feels like, the first thing that I sort of really got when I sort of, was this was an attempt for Anne Rice to write a, a portrait of Dorian Gray for the 20th century. Mm. Mm. Picture of Dorian. Picture of Dorian Gray. I Sorry, not... get it wrong as well. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's the the whole aesthetic, the 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 exploration of self-recrimination and um, and sort of the importance of life and morality and it. it it, it really felt like trying to do a very, very similar thing. I would counterpoint that, perhaps not for the, so much the 20th century, although yes, but an American drawing and writing. Mm. Oh, he's so American. Because he's so American. Who are we describing as so American? Louis or Lestat? Louis. 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 Okay. I mean, Lestat also. But, yeah, and it's, um, it's if, you, if, you, if you want to compare the two characters and the way the two books go, it's the um, Louis is an attempt to do the picture of Dorian Gray, um, as um, Wilde did. Um, Lestat is the Hollywoodized Dorian Gray. <laughs> is Lestat Louis's portrait in the attic? Oh, there's a good That's one. A, yes. Mm. Yes. Yeah, I mean, because Louis is more of a criminal than he likes to make himself out to be. Mm -hmm. uh, even when we listen to his language, like he talks about how, oh, it was a mistake for me to to see humans as, um, what does he say that really pissed me off? Um, what is it? Uncivilized by slavery? So he talks about like the mistakes he makes. And then if you listen to his language, um, when he refers to people uh, running away from bondage, he, he keeps on just calling them slaves. Mm -hmm. uh, as a label and title so yeah he's um he's definitely more of an asshole and he wants anyone to know so, yeah, <laughs> also um maddie and, and fred should i be offended that you are uh saying <laughs> saying that lestat and louis are, are just very american because they're they're jerks nah, you shouldn't so, be offended 
okay tell me more about (laughs) yeah it's it's a conception of of how they interact with the world it feels very foreign Mm. yeah it feels very like they want like there's a lot of french ties to me do you know what i'm saying so yeah but they're not french like french villains they care a lot less about how people perceive them yeah um it's it's kind of like dorian gray is an english monster Mm-hmm. He is perhaps the most English of us. Mm. And um, Dracula, although he is Romanian, is a, is a British monster. Yeah. He, um, written by an Irishman who considered himself British. Um, that he... <laughs> um, I, I, I describe him the same way. So, go on. Yeah, Sorry. It, it, um, not to describe Ireland as part of Britain, clearly, <laughs> but um, he he is a monster of the British imagination. Mm-hmm. I would say that Louis and Lestat are monsters of the American imagination, and that's not. I don't think Rice always sees that, mm. which is why both a bit scornful in the in the descriptor. I think she sees them as universal, but that in itself is very American. Um, in that they are their re- relation with with the material, their relation with with slavery, their relation with money and class mm. and state. Their relation with the world as a place that one goes is American. Mm. Um, and that's like their American novels. That shouldn't be a surprise, but it it is very distinct. And I think possibly one of the reasons she wanted to tackle the subject matter of Dorian Gray is because Dorian is not remotely American. Yeah. Yeah. That thanks. Yeah. And it's yeah, and it, it it's it there's some there is something about the way that um that that the vampires relate to get yeah, to time to money to um it, it, which it, which doesn't which yeah which sits slightly on and this is you know this comes back down it's to, only a couple of hundred years old yes they all think they're so ancient like they're really not and I mean I, I mean and you can put maybe the, to a certain extent this was actually a, this was a point um, and when you got sort of um, the the Louis journeying to the old world to try and sort of find out the origins of vampires and then just finding a, um, well, someone in France who's only like 300 years old than him. Mm-hmm. And who's, oh God, a bunch of sophisticates. Yeah. Who are completely full of themselves. <clears throat> then, then that's kind of the, it's that, then that sort of reflects this sort of idea of, um, of a certain type of American sort of, um, uh, uh, um, it's the search for identity. Yeah, so where where there's sort of this sort of suggestion that um the, that that so many Americans go and try and search for a sort of a a um a deeper truth of their past from you know from their European ancestors and it's that sort of well actually that's just as insubstantial as and that you know they, there's there's a bit there's a, they don't recognise you they recognise you but they don't yeah. acknowledge you and they seem to operate through a set of rules to which which are utterly mm. alien to you and will destroy you if you go up against them mm. and sort of proprietary attitude towards you mm. 
Um, whereas you're better off, you know, going, 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 being in America and where you know how it all works. Mm. I guess I'm, I'm rambling. Yeah. Well, but, but yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's it feels like something. It feels like an American vampire, in the same way that the. Um, I was about to say Stephen Fry. Um, <laughs> 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 Salem's Lot. Um, <laughs> Stephen King, sorry. <laughs> oh dear, I'm going to have nightmares tonight, I think. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just picturing a vampiric Stephen Fry hosting QI. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> so. Yeah, I can... I Yes. They strike me as very American novels. Having read I don't know how many non-American vampire novels. They strike me as very American novels. The vampires strike me as very Americanized. Um, mm. And Lestat and Louis even speak to feeling more at home in North America. Yes. I mean, I, I, for Louis to settle in California, for example... That's very telling to me. Yeah. Yeah. Does that answer your question, Mona? No, oh, she's on mute. No. <laughs> <laughs> so what you doesn't think... answer your question in that? Well, the whole idea there, I mean, so um, so Louis definitely has a, a strong French affinity. And even though we're saying they're American, their perception may, like, I mean, the, the sort of the... It has kind of like a new world feel, right? Like there's so much happening in, in New Orleans and there's so much opportunity. Um, but I, I think that their affinity is very Eurocentric. Um, that's where they see sort of the the mouth of civility. Um, so yeah, I think it's very Eurocentric. Mm -hmm. And also when we're talking about American, um, we shouldn't default to a white lens. Uh, awesome. American's a lot more Jay. than that. So yeah. I don't know. So I, I guess I see these vampires as very Eurocentric, you know, early sort of colonial. Um, but like, I don't know about that. I give them the moniker. Like when I think of them, I don't just I don't really think of America. Do you get what I'm saying? So, yeah. You got to say that a little more like George W. America. 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 Swallowing I think there's. There's a class thing there, though, because with Louis, his family's from France, but mm -hmm. he's, I mean, he's probably, from the bit I read, reread from early in the novel, he doesn't speak to being French himself, but he speaks of his family being French or of France. And he sees himself, I think, very much... Louise, Mississippi, and even if not specifically Louisiana or New Orleansian, I think he's he's just Louis Pontu, like he's of his family and of his family estate more than anything else. Well, and I'm, oh, sorry, go on. And in a in, in a way, he kind of he loses his brother and loses his. His innocence, in a way, mm -hmm. with with how his brother changed and got these visions and everything, and in a weird way, he sort of when he's born again into darkness, thanks to the stat, he is almost truly born again. So he probably is 
the most American character out of in 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 the series, maybe because he kind of grows up with America, as America grows from being a former colony to be to growing into its own country. You've got Louis growing from a former landowner who, with a struggling family and the lost brother and all of that, into ultimately sort of what the stat wants seem to be, but he doesn't quite get there. But into <laughs> his own vampire, yeah, and it's detachment. He's kind of America in metaphor, I think. So, or am I talking up my bottom there? No, I, I think, I think actually the answer is a mix between Probably. all of this. Now, I'm gonna step back and say, let's remember this novel was written 1975-ish, published 1976, so. Mona, I agree with you that we can't we can't always put American in the lens of white male, right? But when we look back at the time frame Rice is writing this in, right? I mean, things are changing, things are beginning to flip, but I mean, let's be clear. So, um, Anne Rice, a white woman, mm-hmm. at the time that she's writing, we can say, um, yeah, the times, blah, blah, blah. It, it's never been true. Um, do you get what I'm saying? It's, it's never been a true statement. It's about perspective. So America has never been this default white place, but the voices that have been amplified in America for so long have given that picture. But America itself has never been that. No, of course it hasn't. I agree completely with that. But I'm going back and saying, you know, you have a white woman from a relatively well-to-do background who is writing about European vampires. I mean, I think the only, you know, just even casting forward in the in the books, the only non-white vampire that we really come across, and Akasha and Enkil are kind of uh, debatable, but they seem... They don't seem African in in the description of how they're described. They don't seem dark at all. Um, but maybe Rashid, right? That is probably the one vampire of color. I think it's kind of getting off track a little bit. But, because I'm not asking for how many vampires of color. No, no, no. I, I can't, you, think, you kind of said it. Anne Rice is writing about European vampires. Yes. Eurocentric vampires. Yes. That's really what I'm saying, too. Yes, and, and, and that's, that's, that's what I'm getting to, is that I think when we look at her scope, right, she's not thinking outside of white male vampires. Well, I mean, I think the, the point I was sort of making is that, okay, yeah, America is not default white, but the discursive America of this fiction is. Like, the vampires are, dis- are a, a discursive technique, they're a literary construction. The America of her books is a literary construction. Everything in the books is a literary construction. The question of whether or not Anne Rice is racist is one I think we can answer very shortly, and the answer would be affirmative. But... <laughs> So she is creating a racist world in her books, yes, but the world is an American racism. And it is Eurocentric because racist America is Eurocentric. Mm -hmm. But it's not, but to say that, to say, but they are not European. That that is sort of the crucial thing about racist American construction is that they are not European. 
when Louis, and I think she sort of acknowledges that, because when Louis goes to France, his daughter is murdered and he is bricked up. Mm -hmm. Mm. He doesn't fit in because he's not European, American. And it's, and when, when we sort of situate it in its historical context and that it is, God, please don't tell me how long ago the 1970s were, because my whole brain sort of breaks, because the 1970s were 30 years <laughs> 20 years ago. You were born outside of the 1970s. Stop. Yeah. Um, but the, yeah, the, the amplification of white voices is, is sort of an issue in that time period. But yes. Making it as a point that that is what was published and that is what, mm-hmm. and that is, is seen as a seminal vampire text, she is portraying a myth, a construct, of a particular white America mm. and that is the vampire that is the sort of vampiric identity from which Louis springs yeah does that make sense Mona no <laughs> no because I mean I, I, I pick up what you're putting down and I think that um, uh, so the idea that uh, that some of these racist ideals are Eurocentric, absolutely true, Eurocentric and brought over to the Americas, 100%. But I think that what she's writing, and also I kind of, I'm looking at this through the context of, um, there's a play called Fashion um, that came out uh, sort of turn of the century. And it's all, it's basically about America's fascination with France and Europe. Mm -hmm. And this being the idea of um, what is erudite, uh, what is acceptable, what's truly civil. And Americans, especially rich Americans, um, wanted wanted to be more European as a status symbol. Mm-hmm. And so when I look at, um, you know, Lestat and Louis and their sort of ties to French and their to, to France and their their in New Orleans itself as its ties to France, I just don't think that she was trying to write this very American um, novel about vampire I mean, or even adding to like American vampire lore. I think all of it really still points to Europe and being very Eurocentric and that being the focus. And also when she's trying, when she's writing about America, like there is this weird sort of half-ass attempt to um, write about the actual diversity that existed here at the time. Um, but it's not well written because she's not, I, I'm sure she was a wonderful person, but she just not, that does not seem well versed in history mm-hmm. um, to, to write about uh, those those subjects to incorporate it into her book. So that's oh, all. Especially I, I, in the first book. When oh, that's, that's the one that I've read, right? Right, right. right so, right. Um, yeah. So I pick up what you're saying. Like, you know, so I think that's what America is. America is a salad of so many different nations and cultures, right? But um, also, it's just this this book just felt very um, Euro forward. That's kind of what I was getting at with the class thing, because Louis Rich, Lestat comes from a mm-hmm. noble background in France and wants mm-hmm. to be rich. So he hangs, attaches himself to Louis. Mm-hmm. And we get, we only get the view of the rich white enslavement um or which white enslaver and his strange french wannabe yeah. new world friend for want of a better term because we can't really say lover because Anne Weiss really didn't like that did she um but, but she's dead <laughs> I, I, 
I I think lover is legitimate. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. This is a critical task. We're allowed to make critical points. Absolutely, yes. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think... I mean, it's the particular relationship with slavery that it um, works on is really, well, ham-fisted. Um, <laughs> it's... Um, I mean, it's, it's unreconstructed. Yeah, uh, some of the South nonsense. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it does come down to the fact that well, well, obviously these slaves could start to um, recognise that there was something wrong with the um, with, with the masters in the house because they were versed in witchcraft. It was the kind of yeah, 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 um, and, and yeah, there's those sort of uh, you know, it's a fairly sort of horrific, broad brushstroke sort of use of. Um, non-whites um, in in the narrative, um, and then yes, it's sort of, yeah. From then onwards, right um, again, sort of jumping uh, slightly forward um, at this point, but r jumping on to how they treat Takasha, etc. In the um, later books, mm -hmm. um, it you know it. it yeah, her understanding of history and is. Um, very poor. Well, it, it's very, it's very, and I'm going to mix the terms here. It's very Euro-American centric. Mm, yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's very Euro-American centric. And for a woman of her age, that is how she was raised. And that is how she is, was educated. Um, I, I think... Some of this is addressed by her as she gets older. I think she understands some of these problematic, you know, uh, issues that are in, especially this first book. I don't think she ever actually addresses it in the text, though. Um, and I, I wanted to bounce back to a point that Robin made about her not being crazy about the the term lovers i think eventually she actually did accept that didn't she i mean you kind of have to it's definitely <laughs> story you get what i'm saying right. like it's it's definitely in the story so i mean i get that probably publicly she she you know had some whatever stance but come on she wrote it yeah privately mm. yeah you know yeah yeah I mean, it's definitely okay, a I mean, baby boomer writing a vampire novel in the middle of the 1970s. I think there's a lot of subtextual stuff that goes on in the Vampire Chronicles that um, is quite psychosexual in its way. Mm -hmm. I know, at the moment. But there is, there is a current about the way she portrays male bodies and female bodies mm -hmm. and desire and homosexual desire and homosocial bonding that speaks to a whole range of issues mm -hmm. and i mean there's there's a reason that it's seen as sort of a seminal gay text yes is it um yeah but it's, ne it's never explicit even though it is very explicit and <laughs> that sort of 
poetic license in which she describes them as lovers and then backs away from the fact that they could ever actually have sex is a is a very interesting sort of sociological moment. Mm. Like you couldn't have written that book ten years later. You Has anyone have... seen the um the the new show interview with the vampire? You have. No. Not yet. Yeah, you have. They really embrace <laughs> that. Like they they embrace that um these two are indeed lovers, at least until um Louis sort of sees the stat for who he is and the luster is gone. He's no longer as radiant. Um, but yeah, they really embrace that they are lovers. And that is a part of the seduction of Louis becoming a vampire is to actually seduce him. I seem to remember reading something last year in the beginning of the build-up to the series airing where... An article went into some depth about Anne Rice's relationship with the TV show and how, basically, um, as she sort of grew grew ill, um, she kind of had to pull away, but she was kind of wanting to pull away anyway because the show was wanting to do things that she didn't want to do. And the subtext was very much along the lines of they were going to make the relationship actually a love relationship and not just a a love relationship from her point of view and her son was also backing off and in the end they both ended up just getting um in name only producer credits during during the creation and she was unhappy with stuff but she couldn't say anything openly partly because of her sort of health situation and everything so she didn't really have the energy to but also partly contractual stuff which is why sort of Christopher's not come out and said an awful lot about it from what I've seen because I think he's under the same contractual situation but this is where um this is where the death of the author comes in Um, (laughs) this is where yeah it it is absolutely there in text of course and the, and so much about um, particularly the first two books in the Vampire Chronicles feel like um, her working through some um, okay that they feel a little bit sort of therapeutic for her the way she's written them and. And, and you know, possibly not fully addressed therapeutic. So it's that's. I think there is enough that there is enough there that suggests that um, there can be significant subtext that maybe she never fully addressed, or maybe she was uncomfortable with. Because it's mm. you know, it, it's if you talk about if you look at the um, uh, the golden period of um, Lestat, Louis, and Claudia. Um, which is what I wanted to move on to next anyway, is because um, <clears throat> it's you get this kind of depiction of yeah, certainly if that would have been written now, there would be no question that was a um, a, a relationship of three 
people and yeah, an unhealthy relationship. <laughs> a relationship. <laughs> you know, there, there was there would be no question there. It was that was that's clearly how that is set up. The um the three of them are clearly more entwined sexually, um, emotionally than the the, the three main ga- um vampires in um what we do in the channels. Um, <laughs> mm. <clears throat> you know, but the, yeah, they are. The, yeah, there's, that that is that is what's going on. They are they are an unhealthy, slightly abusive relationship, and the I think. Yeah, you know, and that is implied continually. I think the thing that I find frustrating with that period in the book is it is well, it, it, it's like an incredibly compressed montage that they don't even give a full montage for. They only say the bad bits, and yet it's supposed to be an abnormally long relationship in vampire world because it's continually come back to the idea that vampires don't normally stay together for that length of time, like 70 right. years or whatever it is. Better but, part of a century, yeah. Um, and you get brief moments of like happy montage where they go into the theatre and the stats sort of spouting Shakespeare. But most of it is about how uncomfortable Claudia and Louis felt of the little stat and really trying to emphasize the sort of the looming presence of the the, the monster that Lestat feel is supposed to be in this novel. Um but when but, it, but one of the things that I got in reading it is I never believed the amount of time that was supposed to have happened had happened. It didn't feel like a genuine time jump. Mm. So what are other people's thoughts about the relationship in its golden years. And we're talking the full relationship between the three of them. Mm. Yes. I agree with you about the time jump. It really feels like it should only be a matter of a few years. Right? It doesn't feel like the better part of a century has passed. I don't... I, I think. I think what sort of sits in the back of my head is we don't see a believable progression for Claudia growing mentally right she's still a little girl she's still a little girl she's still a little girl now suddenly she's 70 and I think that's what adds to the issue with the timing of it all because we don't see we don't see Claudia asking these questions when she's turning 13, 20, 25, 30. Well like nine. Hmm? Like she's a baby. Until she's five. She, until she's a woman. She's five. Yeah. She's five 17. when she's turned. She's like twenty-two. Is like, she? Her femininity, her attitude to sex, her attitude to bodies and space. It's late teens, early 20s. She's not actually like a 70-year-old woman. Well, no. No, but I'm saying she is 70. Yeah, no, 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 no. Oh, okay. 70 years. But, like, she has... She has not aged. The the ageing is very, very strange because Lestat doesn't age. He remains... How old was he when he was turned? He was... 
No, he was older than that, I'm sure. No, no, no he's he like was... 19. Lestat is supposed to be... 19, Jesus 19, Lord. yes. Yeah. Yeah, so he doesn't really age um, after his human lifetime. He remains mm. irresponsible and irritating. Um, and Louis doesn't age because he's sort of this prematurely aged 20-something and remains a sort of... Mm. He sort of hits 30 and then sort of stops. Yeah, I can see that. Claudia ages very strangely. As you say, she remains five. Until For she's a suddenly long time. Long, long time. Until she's suddenly 20, 25, 26. And I mean, it ties into what I was wondering when I read it this time about insights into grief. Mm. And how the death of Rice's daughter and the sense yes. of watching very young children grow up. I mean, so our, our eldest is just about to turn 13 and it's terrible. Isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like she's um a different person, even though I know she's not been five for the last twelve years. You know. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm about six months behind you on that one, right? Because my <laughs> eldest is, uh, you know, about twelve and a quarter right now. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and I think she is addressing a lot of the grief through that about how time moves. Hmm. But I think, as a as a novel, it makes it quite unsatisfactory. And because the if you want to be entirely fair to the novel and sort of add, yeah, you could sort of start talking about how um, that this is an unreliable narrative. This is Louis describing it, and the fact that. As far as Louis is concerned, she remains a five-year-old child and a completely new, ignorant vampire until the point when suddenly she turns around and says how miserable she is and and that it was a completely unexpected thing because he was completely ignorant of everything that was going on. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so, so <clears throat> it was the... And so you can argue that, and mm-hmm. that is backed up retrospectively by um, the encounter with um, Claudia's ghost and narrative and a diary in, is it the Queen of the Damned? It's the Queen of the Damned. Yeah. yeah. Um, where you, you get the impression that Lestat was far more in the know. And that actually, you know, so so you know, this is this is backed up, but it's but fundamentally, this is not there in the in the narrative. And if you just read the um, the interview with the vampire, you're you're not getting that, and it just feels like she's unexpectedly come up. So so it's that you can explain it, and I'm all for you know reading between the lines and not mm-hmm. everything being spelt out novel. But it's not it's not that it's not spelt out; it's just not there. <laughs> right. No, I agree. What are you saying, Fred? It makes me think of Madeleine McCann. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we all know who Madeleine McCann was? Yeah. Is. I do too, but, you know, for anybody listening who might not, why don't you do a quick... So, E5? She was quite little. So something like that, yes. And she was snatched from a hotel room and vanished and was not... Um, she's never been found. Um, and... There was this huge sort of media reaction to it, and her parents started a, a massive campaign to find her. And she 
And after she'd been missing for a good three, four years, they did a um, sort of facial aging on her photograph. Mm-hmm. More the age she would be now. And it is one of the most unsettling and uncanny things I have ever seen. Yeah. They tried, she she looked younger than she would have been um, because they made her look seven and I think at least three years had passed, so she'd have been eight or nine. Um, I can't remember the exact details of the case, mm. but because I only followed it peripherally. But in our imagination, you say Madeleine McCann and we see that image of a very young child. Now, this was. God, this was before we were married, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, Madeline would now be about 20. Oh, wouldn't she have been older? Um, well, we'd have been married 20 years next, uh, next summer, darling. So, um, she would be, she would be an adult now. Mm. But she is still this vanished little girl in a way that stays in our imagination, even if we let her age, cannot follow the natural progression of a human life and it's that sense of absence there and i think as i say what i was saying about how this novel is in a way uh, rice's way of dealing with the grief of losing her daughter that absence yeah. is enormous yeah um, i agree i agree that there is the whole absence of her aging until she is just gone from you even mm-hmm. in potential because even if they found her now she wouldn't be the person who lost and she would never be the person who was lost. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, Maddie, you're right. She was born in May of 2003. So she wouldn't be 20 yet. Amazing pit of guesswork. Excellent. <laughs> but I agree. I, I agree. I think I think what we're, what we're really talking about here is, yes, it's the trauma around... Um, around the memory of of rice's daughter and around Mm, michelle and around that realization that i think rice probably did have that you know she always remembers michelle at that age but you know eventually she wouldn't be that age i mean she was she was older than chris she was older than christopher by quite a few years if i remember correctly by like 10 years um eight ten years something like that so she would probably be late 50s now yeah 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 i remember an interview with with rice talking about how claudia is very much her trying to come to grips with various things about michelle so and that explains why it's messy, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Because was she there? Child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I did take a quick glance at Christopher Rice's Twitter feed. He doesn't mention the series at all. There's so, no retweets well, of trailers or uh, anything like that. Oh, wow. Yeah. What are other people's thoughts about that golden year? Golden, golden year? <laughs> yeah, the, the yeah. single year that they're all together. Yeah. I think this is where the book and the movie really work together because the movie, I think, portrays it much more 
successfully simply because it's a visual medium and you can compress into a couple of minutes or thereabouts little snippets and show subtle changes through fashion and whatever and just show little bits of them teaching Claudia Claudia the piano and then Claudia killing another dressmaker and whatever and then next thing you know they're dressed up in mid sort of 19th century fashions wandering away from a steamer ship and grumbling about the fact that the Yankees don't taste quite the same as the as the locals did back in the day and yeah, you get in a handful of minutes there just that nice little slap, snapshot to move you along without you feeling unsatisfied because like you say in the novel it's it, it's not really there no no i think you're right yeah and i think you can also see the fact that maybe the stat from the moment with claudia's making you get the stat setting up the idea that they're play acting for louis mm-hmm. and claudia maybe doesn't and understand it fully in that moment but by the time the stats bringing her another doll and she's drawing the picture of that woman who unbeknownst to the stat is laying under all the other dollies um she's fully down with the fact that she's been playing a role for so long and she doesn't want to anymore right yeah no i i think you're right i think that yeah you you it's why you're using the term montage there the what the film you does is very effective as a way of showing that in a way that yeah you don't i don't think you feel in the book although i think it conveys the unsettling aspect of claudia far less effectively for a start mm. because it's mm. kirsten's... i think it is kirsten sure but i can't remember kirsten dunce it's kirsten dunce wrong kirsten sorry <laughs> desperately the wrong kirsten i apologize sincerely um is less is, is, is not as young but there's that desperately unsettling bit in the book where she says you know how do you think the men I meet see me? Right. Do they think do they they don't see me as an eternal child? Right. And this huge pit of sort of fear and sexual depravity that opens, and it's very quickly closed again, and the movie can't grapple with that. No. 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 I was I was struck by how the movie does not really go there at all. There's only one moment, and that's just before she's snatched away and they're dragged off to their various ends when she kisses Louis on the lips, literally just as they burst in and drag them off. Mm -hmm. And that's as close as they get. Well, they can't, you know, because that's an actual, Mm -hmm. you know, Kristen Dunst is a person. Right, right, exactly. Yes, yes. (laughs) But even that's further than I sort of would have expected. Mm. Yes. Mm. You can tell it wasn't a French film. Yeah. yeah. Or even, <laughs> you know, uh, 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 a Czech film, right? Valerie and her Week of Wonders, right? Oh, and right. Dario Argento's nowhere near it. <laughs> Dario is another topic entirely. <laughs> <laughs> the entire Argento clan. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I so, think I think when we look at, at Claudia and compare her to Valerie, I know it's been a while since we've watched Valerie. Oh, right. Mm. Yeah. Not, yeah. Yeah. Mm. But Valerie, of course, is talking is specifically old. about puberty and coming yeah. into being a woman and things like that, whereas Claudia doesn't get to do that. No. No. Mind any other thoughts on this bit? I mean, only to point to um, Louisa Monster. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Yeah, because I mean, really, what he um, stole from her, I mean, it's a crime. Like, we talk about the banality of immortality, but uh, through Claudia, we see it's imprisonment. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we see it somewhat with Armand, but he was older. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So the if we think about the relative monstrosity of Louis and Lestat as portrayed in this novel. What what are our thoughts here? Because obvious and and this is where, you know, the point is the novel is explicitly an unreliable narrator, whether it's as much of an unreliable narrator as you then have to give it credence for if you read the rest um or not it's you know the point is louis by his own admission is a monster and i don't think he's as monster as much as he realizes he's a monster but what do we think about the relative monstrosities is is lestat a more authentic monster what what, what, what do we think i mean i think that really they're um there are two peas in a pod though uh louis doesn't perceive it and it's just sort of the idea of the the person who is self-aware of what they do, um, be it you know malicious or not, um, versus the person who's not self-aware. How they see themselves is not how they behave in the world. But it you know they're they're really they are two peas in a pod. Mm -hmm. Lestat's just willing to admit it. He's more and in that way, which is kind of funny because we hear we, we read in the story how he's less sophisticated, how all these things, but truly he's actually more self-aware. When he commits these acts, he doesn't try to, to fool himself into believing that he's good. It it goes back to Maddie's observation about the portrait of Dorian Gray. If Lestat yeah. is Louis's portrait, if Lestat is the honest side of all of this. Exactly. Yeah. Robin? Yeah, no, I don't think there's really much else I could <laughs> add to that, to be honest. I mean, even when it comes to, to not even including the fact that, sort of, ignoring the fact that Louis was just going to kill Claudia and that was going to be that, he somehow manages intentionally or not and we can't really say because we're getting only getting his perspective mm -hmm. but he somehow manages to keep her on side and possibly twist her against the stat to the point mm. where she's mm. willing to kill the stat and claim him as her maker despite the fact that yeah the stat's an asshole but he's never said he's anything else mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and louis is so hung up on the death of his brother, whether he still realizes it or not by the time they get to Paris, that he's forever seeing himself as 
well, I'm losing everybody and I'm always sort of the victim, I suppose. Is he really th- seeing himself as that or is that just the story he's telling himself because mm-hmm. he doesn't want to admit that he gets off on it just as much as the stat does? Hmm. Well, uh, I mean, because you've got the sort of broad brushstrokes of idea that um, that essentially Claudia in her basically not having the um the corruption of growing up so therefore not getting all the cultural type things becomes the most obvious monster in inverted columns mm. because she just lives for her lusts and lives for her feed feeding and stuff like that and that's why her monstrosity is so abhorrent for him because he's living this kind of this lie of oh I'm actually a cultured person. Or, yeah, so, I mean he, he is in fundamental. He's fundamentally in bad faith. Um, not not at the end of the novel. Face the horror of our existence is to be mm. utterly removed from hope, existing and maintaining one's existence in a state of absolute disillusionment with everything. I find it most interesting after Armand abandons him. And you bring up Eudorian Greypoint very well there. Mm. In that that's, uh, that's Gray's thing, isn't it? Yes. Okay, well, let, 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 let's, let's move to Paris, unless we want to talk about the bit that isn't in the films at all. Oh, pardon me. Before we do, I have a question just for everybody. What was your What was your take on Lestat and his father? Mm. Thank you. I completely forgotten about that. For me, that was a huge plot hole. It and it was it didn't make sense at all. How is it that I, if I become a vampire, I lose all fear. I am the purest essence of myself, but my dad can't find out. I mean, I... shh! Don't wake up my parents. Exactly. <laughs> None of that made any sense to me at all. And but it also it's kind of it 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 has implications that one uh, when you become vampire you don't lose um, that part that spark of humanity that makes you want to care for others that doesn't make sense. Um, and you know he was a caretaker. Tell me, what are your thoughts on that? I. It... Because it's slightly challenged by the fact that you then um, you then get it back um, as, as an explanation in Lestat. Because I think Vice is aware of how um, contradictory and how it doesn't really make sense, that sort of aspect. And I don't think her explanation in Lestat makes it any better. Mm-hmm. It is? I haven't read Lestat. What is her explanation? Well, it, it, I mean, it's basically, um, if I remember correctly, all of his family, uh, well, his mother dies of, uh, of uh, cancer or something like that, um, and then the rest of his family die in the revolution. Gabrielle doesn't and... die. No, 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 oh, of course Gabrielle doesn't die. Sorry. Gabrielle doesn't um, die. G- G- Gabrielle dies in human, human form. Um, right. <laughs> right, right, right. Lestat yes. turns but, Gabrielle, yes. But then his... So his father, who he absolutely hates and detests, and is uh, made his entire um, 
upbringing miserable and is the reason basically he becomes a vampire because he was horrendous as a person um like writes to him and says he's gone to new orleans to escape the revolution and he he needs to go and join him and i mean it's in a sort of potential moment of um recriminations of self-hatred of I, I, I yeah. <laughs> if anyone's got a better explanation, please. I mean, by me. this point, so Lestat's been turned by a vampire named Magnus, and Magnus has just, you know, hey, here's my treasures of the centuries, all for you. So now Lestat has immense wealth, um, and he's become the doting uncle, and he's peppering his nieces and nephews with bunches of stuff and his mother and he's sending stuff back you know whether his father uses it or not he doesn't really care um you know that sort of thing then the revolution comes like maddie was saying everybody gets killed gabrielle's been turned into a vampire by Lestat by this point she's kind of his companion right now she keeps bouncing back and forth um and um Everybody gets killed except his father, runs to New Orleans, sends him a note, finally catches up with him. I think, what, in Egypt? Is that it? Yeah. Yes, he's in Egypt. And saying, hey, come to New Orleans. You know, (laughs) save me. (laughs) Because I ran away from the revolution. I'd love to know how his blind and sickly father managed to run away from the revolution, but his presumably healthy and, you know, somewhat you know uh, in shape brothers and families didn't manage to escape the revolution they smuggled them out in a steam trunk <laughs> probably <laughs> so so yeah i i'm not crazy about the explanation mona i'm really not um yeah honestly i i, I love you all i haven't heard an explanation yet yeah. So, like... <laughs> yeah, I, it, basically his father runs away from the revolution and asks him to come to new orleans and uh, Marius tells Lestat to go to New Orleans. So he listens to Marius and goes to New Orleans. So, okay. Okay, I picked that up. But then why does he caretake for his father the way he does? The first time he's ever mean to his father is after he turns Louis. Prior to that, um, he's just, you know, sort of a, a kind son, which does not track. Mm. We see that. Do we see him with his father before, Louis? Yes, we do. And uh, they talk about it. It's it's one of those the notes that I made because I thought it was so weird. Um, and then they, they also talk about the very first time that we see him being mean to his dad, talking back to his father, is after he turns Louis. So, okay, hmm. so, uh, and this, this does involve um, retrospective reading from Lestat. Okay. But... Um, my and this uh, this goes into the next podcast, but um, <laughs> if that is the case, because I had, I don't think I'd entirely picked that up, there is the implication that Lestat's returning to his father is a attempt at redemption, attempt at doing what Marius um, tells him to do, which is try and be human, live a life, and so he right. tries to father to and actually to live a better life than he did when he was a human okay and um louis is 
my understanding, the reason why Lestat falls for Louis is he is reminds Lestat of the violinist whose name temporarily escapes me. Nicholas, thank you. Mm-hmm. Nicky. Um, and there, and bearing in mind the relationship between Lestat and Nicky was fundamentally about the antagonism between himself and his father. No wonder he starts to his father at that point. There we are. There's my now, um but <laughs> But that is that is a retcon, right? That's retcon. That, in... that is absolutely retcon. Yeah. yeah. I don't so, think it's a talking vampire interview interview with a vampire. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's a good explanation in, in interview. But that's a great explanation, thank you. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that, that hits it on the nose, yeah. Um I oh, so and actually just before we go to Paris, which was I was saying, um uh if if I was to say that um, Louis was um, fundamentally middle class and Lestat was fundamentally upper class, and ultimately some of Louis's flaws are by painting a bad picture of middle class um, aesthetics, what would we think? Wait, Do you wait, think are you you're switching? likely to say that? I, I, I do think I'm lying. Oh, okay. So this, is, this is particularly because, um, and th- this comes down to the way that Louis describes Lestat as a slob, as, yeah. as uncultured. Yes. All of that stuff, bearing in mind, I mean, Rice fell in love with Lestat before he wrote, she wrote The Vampire Lestat. Mm-hmm. Um, Bearing in mind, we then find out the vampire that Lestat is from a proper noble household, has had proper education. You know all this. No, oh, he but, didn't but, have a proper education. No, he he had proper education because he was taught by his mum how to read. That's what a proper education is. Um, <laughs> okay, but no, but he, he but he is from a noble household. Right. See, I actually got the feeling that at least the way Lee described him, um, Lestat is a constant symbol of. Uh, what do I want to say? I don't want to equate um, classism with behavior, but I think he's a, he, he's like forever uh, the underclassman. He's forever the less sophisticated. He might like fine things, but he's not a gentleman. Do you get what I'm saying? He's not a gentleman. And that is and, definitely and, how Louis describes him. You got it. Yeah. yeah. And, right the, but the, and this is, this is again, I might be talking slightly linking with the later books here. Um, because that is how Louis describes it. But the very fact that we discover he is actually upper class um, then comes back as a, essentially you could criticise Louis based on that because he just doesn't recognise upper class ideals. I mean, so there's an element of fairness to that, and that's very much what Bryce calls on in the second book. But I wonder, I wonder how much of it is snobbery on her part. Oh, the, the, when, I was... she, when she falls in love with Lestat, he can no longer be working class. Oh, yes. Like, mm-hmm. that's just the classism on her part. And like, I, I agree, like, you know, aristocrats are generally uh, very uncultured by middle class terms. And yes. Louis is pure bourgeoisie. But I, I feel like Rice herself was too bourgeois, really, no. to make incisive uh, class-related points. Yeah, I, I think you're fair in the... in When I read the interview with the vampire, I assumed that 
Lestat was a lower class, lovable rogue with pretensions above his station, which is how Louis describes him. Mm-hmm. And we have no reason to believe otherwise in interview. Yeah. Absolutely. You're quite right. Right. We have absolutely no reason to believe otherwise. It's not until the opening of Lestat, and I just hear Charles Vance in the back of my head now. Um, you know, saying, ah, Louis, you were so, you were so naive to believe that I was lower class. Um, and it's like, okay, all right. So we're going to retcon Lestat as a nobleman. Um, which, which does bring in the, the fact that there is some clear class play in this. Okay, yes. so yes. let's, let's take, let's take this to Paris. Let's talk about Amand. Do we have to? <laughs> oh, of course not, fine. Um, let's talk about... Um, Antonio Bandera. Oh God, the hair! <laughs> the hair! I was watching it with my wife on Friday, and she's just like, "What is up with the hair?" And I said, "Well, it was the '90s." Exactly. It's very '90s. <laughs> oh my God, there's so much of it. <laughs> and I had long hair at that point. You know, I'll admit it, but wow, just. Yeah, it was straight out of Melrose Place. It was very oh. flowing. Oh, an extreme music video. Yeah. Yes. Vampire Chronicles 90210. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I... I... don't... I can't um, align Antonio Banderas' character with... Um, with Armand. Armand, thank you. Thank yeah. you. I'd forgotten his name. With Armand in the book. No. No. He Armand in the book is um is a very strange again, sort of picking up on this sort of um ethereal character. Boyish, non-physical being topping the hell out of Brad Pitt. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could, but and well, I don't want I don't want to slam Neil Jordan, but you've got to be a better director than Neil Jordan, and oh, the yeah. the mores of your audience have to be different. Because yes, you could you could pull it off. I but... mean, fast thinking about the time of the film and it's, maybe this is maybe it's slightly too early when was the film again 94 yeah 94 oh absolutely you could though you you could have had johnny depp playing um oh. um playing um amand i was actually about to ask everybody mm. who would have been a better casting choice um and i, I yeah so uh, and, but yeah you would have had a young johnny depp I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, you could have had someone else, but I. But could you um, have River Phoenix, or even River Phoenix, absolutely. Oh River, yeah. River was supposed to be Daniel. Was he? Yeah. Yep. River. That's and... that's why the movie's dedicated to River Phoenix. Oh wow! And Christie Slater gave um, his fee for the movie to River's charity. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Does River Phoenix was supposed to be Daniel. Hmm. I mean, I absolutely love Antonio Banderas' 
generally. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's yeah, you want you want someone with that very boyish beauty that young Johnny Depp, for example, had, or River Phoenix, or someone like that. You know, that, yeah. that's that's what you wanted from um, that character. So, and you absolutely could have had. Um, yeah, could could have had that going on. Just as an interesting, so this is a brief aside here. It occurs to me that they cast um, uh, Tom Cruise mm-hmm. as a watched um, uh, *La Liaison's Dangerous* and wanted someone to replicate Malkovich. Malkovich. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because because Cruise's portrayal of Lestat is very similar to Malkovich's. Mm. Oh well, he's more brash though, and lately yeah. there's, there's a more refinement. It's it's um, yeah, it it has the ability to pause, but and Tom Cruise really goes yeah. over. He's extra. Oh, I mean, <laughs> but I, mean, I, I can see wanting, um, uh, yeah, a young Malkovich to be in that film. Sure. Um, again, Valmont, yeah. Valmont, I think, um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, you you could why not put a you could put a John young John Malkovich in there. Yeah, you know, yeah, the, I, the problem was it was the nineties. Right, and so for Armand, we needed someone who was um younger, boyish, and had the ability to control a room. And in the nineties, um that was not okay. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And it's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean they put all of the young actors in that movie. You had Slater, and you had Cruz, and you had Pitt, and Banderas, even. But they only yeah. used the actors that were um, adult enough, for the most part, yes. adult enough looking, yes. beginning to yes. take away from another conversation. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. It, 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 Armand I called... would have been better off played by Slater circa Heathers than, yeah. than yeah. Antonio Banderas. Yeah. 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 Sort of reading um, something earlier today, they when they had to recast Daniel, the the interviewer, they initially looked at Johnny Depp and Leonardo DiCaprio before um, going for Christian Slater, and I think Leonardo DiCaprio as Armand probably would have been. I don't know how successful it would have been, but I think it probably would have been maybe the closest. I think that probably would have been the closest. Visual, yeah. This would have been about the time of what's eating Gilbert Grape, wouldn't it? Yep. Yes. Mm. Oh, fasc- fascinating. Yeah, that would have been deeply disturbing to see. Yeah. DiCaprio would have been. DiCaprio would have been just a little under 20 when they filmed it. And would have still looked about 12. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. he, really he really didn't come into his own until he was about 30 or so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. So I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I quite enjoy his performance in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Um, oh yeah, it's a great, great flick. It's brilliant. Yeah. Oh. Um, okay. I do think that maybe the change in Armand is possibly Neil Jordan's biggest stamp on the film because mm-hmm. Rice wrote the script, and I think prob- I think she gets the full credit for the script writing. She does, but. Neil Jordan has said that he had a a passer to himself, and I think he probably 
went mostly over the Armand character more than anything. Yeah. I just, feel to, I mean, uh, just, I mean, just to sort of make it safer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's and that's what they do. They, it's, I mean, I suppose if you're going to be entirely fair, um, Armand is, as far as the interview with the vampire is concerned, so otherworldly and so untouchable and so incomprehensible mm -hmm. that the ability to replicate that in film is quite difficult. Oh. So mm -hmm. you do, so you can see you wanting to go elsewhere. Else, you know, uh, um, I mean, it's. I mean, just as a very brief aside, because there's a similar sort of time. Um, have you seen the BBC adaptation adaptation of um, Neverwhere? Oh, yeah. from like I own years it. Ago? Yeah, I yeah. own it. With, with Peter Capaldi as the oh um, yes, the angel. Yeah. Oh yes, I do. Yeah, <laughs> but and it's and it's this case of. I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I love the way Capaldi does that, but I, but I, I don't think there was any way that a TV show at that point could show what the angel on Islington was supposed to be. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In a way that actually felt right, and obviously, you know, the BBC had nothing like the budget. <laughs> yeah, we well, weren't well, we ready. Like, uh, with, so just so you know, I'm a huge gaming fan. We can talk about that later. But we weren't ready as a society with the technology that we would need to show. No that scene the way it needed to be shown right and that and that but i think i think this is a similar thing with amand here so what the film does as the, the um yeah interview with the vampire does is it just says fine we're not going to go there we're going to make this very catholic <laughs> and make this about yeah yeah and get um banderas to do his brooding thing yeah. Um, which is not what, you know, um, Aman should be. Um, but Aman is a very strange character, and there is also the argument that actually maybe you can't portray Aman at all because he is insubstantial as a character. I mean, from my understanding, the vampire Armand, the novel, is uh, deeply unsatisfactory because it kind of feels like a piece of fanfic in many ways because it, it 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 can't because that character is written in such a way that doesn't really lend well to characterization. Um, that's uh, someone else pick up. I, I think you're in the right spot. Um, I just checked real quick. It does not look like they have announced who the who they're casting as Armand in the TV series. Oh, so maybe yeah. they just don't want anyone to know yet, or maybe they're still struggling with this idea. Ben Wolfhard. Hmm. Oh. Ben Wolfhard. Okay. Ugh. All right. Maybe. And about the Timothy Chalamet. Well, since Chalamet probably is a vampire, um, because he's he's not aged <laughs> in anything that I've seen him. Um, 
I think I think Armand is very difficult to cast. Um, yeah. And I think you have to come to a new understanding of where you place him and how you place him. And you know, the simple the simple answer is boom, all right, he's a 30-year-old guy. But that doesn't yeah. work out when we get to the later books and Marius is in love with this young, fragile boy. Mm. So, going back to Matthew's earlier point, Armand as Dorian Gray. Because mm. he's an alternative. Mm-hmm. He's placid, untouched, strangeness of seduction. Mm. Far more true to, to the wild, at least. I mean, in the yeah. end, is I mean, the Vampire Chronicles about Lestat, or is it really about Armand? I mean, I mean it's about Lestat, let's be honest. <laughs> well, sure, yes. But, he's he's taking center but, stage because he demands to be at center stage. But, but yes, Armand is fundamentally... Well, he, he is Catholic. Um... <laughs> Is, well, mm, way he's betrayed. Um, but yeah, he's he is the um, you know, the early modern vampire in the form of a boy. He is brooding and beautiful and ancient. Yeah, he, he's all the contradictions. He's yeah, absolutely. How many um, boys do we have? Vampires in the forms of boys. Um, vampire. Uh, what? So generally in culture. Yeah. Vampires in the form of boys. Um. Other than the annoying one in Buffy. Yeah. Oh, we've got the young one in Near Dark. Yeah. Yes. Uh, While well, we're thinking, my thought of I don't. This is Laddie in Lost Boys. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I don't think it's an ideal casting, but I can see Hollywood wanting to cast Tom Sturridge as a mod. Hmm. I don't think I don't think it'd be a good casting, but the, the he would do the kind of quiet, isolated, brooding thing that they that you know. Right. Um. Um. Who else do we have? He is the most interesting character, and the vampire Armand is a spectacular book insofar as it removes any interest from him as a character. <laughs> um, that, that's, that's what I've heard, is that I just... One, I really dislike what I've read about the retcon in terms of how he handles Claudia in that. Uh -huh. um, so, spoiler alert, from what I understand, he Claudia's like, yeah, I'll leave Louis if you find a way to make me um, a grown woman. And Armand's like, hmm, maybe if I decapitate this other vampire woman and decapitate you, our natural healing ability will be able to allow me to graft your head to that of the adult. <laughs> I'd forgotten that. And I'm just like, wow, um, I'm glad I didn't waste any brain cells reading that book. 
See, my main criticism, I read someone just ranting that you, you shouldn't read uh, The Vampire Amand simply because they break up Amand and Daniel. Well, I mean, that's, 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 a, that's a discussion for next podcast, but... <laughs> that is a discussion for next podcast. <laughs> I mean, is breaking up Armand and Daniel a bad thing? Um... <laughs> It's the ship from the Vampire Chronicles. Thank you very much. It is. <laughs> it's not very healthy for Daniel. <laughs> Nothing's very healthy for Daniel. <laughs> Nothing's Daniel. healthy for Daniel. <laughs> Daniel's just in a bad spot. <laughs> um, okay, I'm, 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 I'm just going to point this towards because um, the um, the question of and I know we can come back to other discussions in a moment, but this is an important question: Is Interview with the Vampire a vampire novel? Well, we don't have Michael here to say, do we? So we need to decide for ourselves. Oh boy! I want to hear what the others say. Rob, yeah, you Mona. know. Oh, may I? I yeah. So you know the movie The Crow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we all should. It's, uh, I mean, it's a rite of passage for all. Hey, I cosplayed as Eric Draven back. In so the exactly. So the feeling of the movie The Crow is, um, if I could put that into a word, it is what Interview with the Vampire is. It's like that sense of like brooding. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like that's mm -hmm. that's how mm -hmm. I feel about the book. So, so was the it a vampire? It's it's the crow. It's the crow. Is that is that an appropriate? That's like yeah. It's the I, I see what you're getting at there, and it's interesting because the crow, of course, comes from a, a spot of trauma as well. For Obar, because he wrote that as he wrote that as therapy after his mm -hmm. fiance died in the accident. Okay. So yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. But you're not saying whether or not it's a vampire novel. Oh yeah, yeah, it's the crow. That's <laughs> <laughs> Robin. I'm just sort of yeah. I'm just kind of having like a minor um, thing about is the crow really a vampire story? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, looking at what's happened to pop culture in the years since at least the movie, um, if Vampire Diaries is a vampire thing, then Interview the Vampire certainly has to be. If Twilight's a vampire story, then Interview the Vampire vampire novel, then Interview the Vampire has to be. Um, I read it as a vampire novel when I first read it. I saw the film as a horror movie. I mean, I was wrong, but <laughs> for the most part... <laughs> But I was watched, I watched it because it was a vampire horror movie when I first saw it. Um, it's obviously much more than that, but I think, yeah, on the surface, it's a vampire novel. It's a vampire story. You can take the vampire out of it and put, like, the crow on top or whatever you like, but it's. I don't think it would work without them being vampires. I mean, That's a great measure. Like, if you remove the vampires from the story, you know, is it is it the same story? I think it's a great measure. 
Okay, so if you removed the vampires and made Louis Dorian Gray, mm-hmm. is it a vampire novel? Maybe Dorian kills some people along the way. Dorian Gray. Oh, okay, but we could argue that Dorian Gray is a vampire novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but right, so but, I get yeah, what so, you're saying. Yeah. Like if we remove the vampire from Louis and we tell the story. Um, yeah. Describe yeah. Dorian killing a few people on the way. Mm-hmm. Which he does, yes, absolutely. Is it a vampire novel? Probably not. Yeah, let's let's not say Dorian. How about if we make Louis Orlando? Okay, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Um, I'm just having a couple of clipsures over here. <laughs> It is clearly a gothic novel, I think. Yeah. I don't think there's yeah. any question about it being a gothic novel. So play, play, so just putting it as a gothic introspective novel about an immortal being who has regrets. My mother would have given it to me as well when I was 12 years old and asked me if my novel was vampire in it. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was looking for, by the way. Thank you. The Crow. Regrets. Yeah. <laughs> That's the word I was looking for. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think this necessarily fits the definition that we established back in the day. Right. I mean, sure. The blood's there. The sex is there. The, the um, desire or regret for immortality is there. But is it truly a vampire novel? Of all of them, I would say this is the one that's most a vampire novel. Yeah. Because I think as we get deeper into it, we're dealing with Rice and her crisis of faith. Mm -hmm. Of course, as we get more into it and she delves less into vampire lore and more into Lestat as a superhero... Mm-hmm. Um, it feels much more like Buffy. Mm-hmm. I okay. I, I mean, think I, mean, I think it, that's it, something for next time. Yeah. Yeah, but but it's it's the I think. Um, <clears throat> I mean, because of course the whole point is a completely moot point. Clearly, it's a vampire novel. You know. Yes. I, I do. I, it's, it is clearly a vampire novel. There is no such thing. You can't. Um, a vamp, you know, we, we let's. Um, what, who is the um, aesthetic? Um, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but it, you know, it's the according to you know, it, it is a vampire novel because it is within the you know, it is within the vampire genre because we've included it within that. It's, it's yeah, anything is a vampire novel, but um, <laughs> it um, it. I think it's always interesting the the vampire novels that are least obviously yeah, as in where there is actually a genuine question are quite often the most interesting ones. Um it it the very I think the point that um the interviewer, the vampire, is clearly using 
the vampire genre to explore feelings of personal loss and things is what is it and therefore yes she could easily have obviously written the same novel with a few differences to make a non-vampire novel right that is the reason why it's interesting um if we take something like um off the top of my head i'm gonna go go for um the doctor who vampire novel we discussed Mm. Uh, that's clearly a vampire novel Mm -hmm. it's simply just using all the tropes from vampire novels you know um it is you know unobjectively a vampire novel in the same way that all of um buffy the vampire slayer is vampire uh series yeah, I definitely, I get what you're saying. I was actually thinking the same thing because the way interview sort of focuses it, it's not like a vampire um, going through like the the throes and, and passions of that. Kind of like in the very beginning where Louis talking about Lestat did not bring his attention to the beauty of his death in that right. transition. Um, oh, where, oh. Right. Um, yeah, so I, I get what you're saying. Like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, we're looking at it from the Slayer's perspective. And when you see um, Spike, I think his name is, yep. um, he becomes yeah. focused on her. It, it all goes through her lens. In this story, mm. I kind of feel the same thing, um, that there's something that, um, I don't even know how to say it, but it points me to that moment where we're ignoring or missing the beauty of being a vampire. So it's all just regret. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where the crow comes in. Yeah, that's kind of my feeling of that sort of brooding. Yeah. 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 And of course, this is uh, also um, what I was drawing to when we were talking about Gilda. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Gilda, the when, when I kept coming back to this as feeling like a response to Interview with a Vampire. Oh, yeah. What yeah. I meant, the, you know, um, if yeah, it's the same sort of setup, but whereas Interview with a Vampire is, oh God, isn't it awful? Um, Gilda is, um, look at all the ways I'm empowered in the way that society doesn't allow me to be. Right. Hey everybody, um, thank you very much for inviting me to this episode. I've got to drop, but um, yeah, uh, have a great one. What a great conversation. Thanks. Yep. Thank Hi, you so Mona. much, Matt. Yeah, bye. bye. Nice to meet you. All right. So, Maddie. We want to wrap up there. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I mean that was why I, that's why I suggested the Is This a Vampire? Because I was right. noticing this is getting close. I, I think just sort of as a, as a um, seed to plant for the next episode... You know, I want to talk about narrative, um, narrative voices, narrative structure between mm. her pieces. I think the only reason I was reluctant to talk about Interview with the Vampire as an isolated novel mm-hmm. is once you introduce the next two novels, it is very talk- difficult to talk about it in isolation. Agreed. Obviously, Mona could because she just read the first one. Right. But um, the dialogue between them becomes quite important. And I think we are absolutely, in the next episode, going to come back to stuff we talked about in the interview with the vampire. Definitely. 
definitely. But I think, and I think, yeah. So we have things, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I, I, I think interview is very much a standalone piece, and I, 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 I don't know. When we get to the next episode, I'll talk about what I think about the redemption of Lestat de Langle and uh, what uh, what that all means in light of Interview with the Vampire. And I will drag myself through the film adaptation of uh, Queen of the Damned as well. Absolutely. You need to just for the presence of Paul McGann. Um, Indeed. So I, think, let, let, let's, I think we're going to wrap up our discussion now. Mm -hmm. I'm this is you can tell they were a teacher for a bit can't you yeah I, I used to be a teacher and this is um but but i i think this is a really interesting discussion i would love you to join us again for our next episode where we will be talking about the uh vampire Lestat and the queen of the damned please drop us a line send us an email or um comment on twitter or something if you have any thoughts about yeah. anything we've discussed today we'd love to um hear what else you've got to say I've been Matty Tucker. You've been Matty Tucker? Yeah, I'm, I'm no longer Matty Tucker. You've I've regenerated. Been... I am Mr. Grey Squirrel. Okay. This has been um, this podcast bites. And Thank you. we'll see you soon. We'll see you soon. Yes, absolutely. Bye. been listening to this podcast bites an occasional podcast with aspirations of being monthly thanks your hosts are usually alice wilfred earl maddie tucker michael gordon and me joffrey sprawl if you're already a subscriber we're thrilled to have you please tell your vampire loving friends about us if you aren't yet a subscriber what are you waiting for just visit our website at thispodcastbites.com for more information also please make sure to follow us on Twitter at Bytes Podcast. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Thanks again. We really do appreciate your support. Make sure to tip your waiters. <laughs>